time, plastics, and universal basic income. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer questions about science, faith, and life. I'm your host, Mike McCarg, and this week I'm really excited. 100% of this week's show questions are about science. So kind of going back to the old school origins of the program, I think it's going to be a ton of fun. So if you've got nothing else going on, what do you say? Let's get it started. Well, some really big news to start off the program this week. Uh, My friend Michael Gunger and I, who co-founded something called The Liturgist, if you haven't heard of it, The Liturgist Podcast is a much more popular podcast than the one you're listening to now. And uh, Michael and I went on a very small tour, two-city tour, of uh, Boulder, Colorado and Portland, Oregon for something called Tabs and Wafers, which was us kind of celebrating the search for spirituality and community and advocacy and change through all the different ways that people do that, both inside and outside the church. It was really, really funny. I don't think I've laughed that hard in a long time. I don't think I've cried that hard in a long time. Uh, It was a wonderful event, and so we are going to do more of them. So June 28th, we'll be in Kansas City. June 29th, we'll be in Atlanta. July 26th, Minneapolis. July 27th, Chicago, August 2nd, L.A., with a a show right here uh, where I live in Los Angeles, California. August 16th will be in Tempe. September 21st, San Francisco. September 27th, Dallas. September 28th, Houston. And September 29th, Austin. So that's a good number of shows for this second wave of Tabs and Wafers. We'll probably do even more of them, uh, but we'll see how these go. And, uh, and then announce plans after that. But you can get tickets to all those shows right now just by going to AskScienceMike.com and clicking on the button that says Events. Uh, that will let you see all the tabs and wafers events. Plus, I'll also be at the Wild Goose Festival this year along with Michael uh, Gunger and Hillary McBride and William Matthews. We're going to be there as the liturgists. So that'll be July 11th through July 14th in Hot Springs, North Carolina. So, pretty extensive touring plans this year. And if I'm coming anywhere near you, you know I'd love to see you. AskScienceMike.com and then click on Events. Hello, Science Mike. I have a question for you about time. Does time exist? Thank you. Well, this is a great question, and one I have spent an absurd amount of time thinking about and researching, and it might sound strange to ask a question like, does time exist? After all, we are experiencing time right now. I'm experiencing it as I record this episode, and you're experiencing time as you listen to it. We know we're experiencing time because you don't know what I'm going to say next, but you do know what I've already said, right? We have this vantage point where there's some information that comes to us later. There's 
information that has already occurred and this information that we experience right now, right? That's time. So we certainly experience time. So how on earth could anyone ask if time exists? Well, believe it or not, in physics, time is much more mysterious than it is in our everyday lives. But I want to start by saying that, yes, time does exist. And even in physics, time exists. You know, I often hear people saying that time doesn't exist. Heck, I've said it myself. Uh, But when people say that time doesn't exist, they mean time doesn't exist as humans intuitively experience it. And it's true that the time we experience every day um, at most is something that happens on a local scale or within a single reference frame. Let's unpack that. First of all, to say that time exists in physics is definitive. Let's talk about some some ideas in physics like speed or velocity or acceleration. All of those concepts require a unit of measurement along a temporal axis. If we're talking about your speed, we might talk about how many kilometers you're moving in an hour or a minute or a second, right, to get speed. If we're talking about velocity, we're going to add some kind of a heading to that speed measurement. If we're talking about acceleration, we're going to have to double up. Like if we talk about the acceleration of uh, Earth's gravity well, we're going to talk about meters of second, meters per second per second of acceleration, right? Uh, doubling up to show that that rate is changing at some predictable rate, the rate of acceleration. So, uh, or the, excuse me, the acceleration rate is constant in Earth's gravity well, but it means. Uh, every second in Earth's gravity well, you will accelerate 9.8 meters per second. Okay? So if you start at zero, a second later, you're at 9.8. Uh, a second later, you're at 9.8 times two. Basically, is how uh, those kind of measurements work. A little off the <laughs> central point, though. So if that makes no sense, let it go. The important thing is simply that we use time in physics all the time. Uh, when we say that time doesn't exist in physics, we're talking about the fact that there is no universal clock. A second where I am uh, sitting uh, in my house in La Crescenta, California, is going to be different than a second on the International Space Station or different for a second on the Curiosity rover on Mars. We are experiencing subtly different seconds in all of those reference frames, all of those places, all of those perspectives, right? So there is no universal clock. A second is not a second everywhere. And there's no universally simultaneous now because the passage of time varies. There's no such thing as, you know, something that happens at the same time everywhere. That doesn't exist. We learned that from Albert Einstein. Einstein showed us that time and space are part of a single fabric of the cosmos. Space and time together form space-time. And space-time is a warpable fabric. Ooh, boy. This is going to be a tough question to do without visuals. (laughs) Uh, But you can imagine that we can measure space-time with different rulers. And when we imagine the space part of space-time... 
we can use three different rulers. And those rulers are, let's label them height, width, and depth, right? So if we take something in space and we label those rulers in centimeters, we can tell you how many centimeters, centimeters tall, wide, and deep a given object is. We have another ruler that's a temporal ruler, and we mark it with seconds. And that's another way of measuring space-time uh, through a temporal measurement. So you might not think we can measure an object with seconds, but we can measure its position over time using not three, but four coordinates. It's height, it's width, it's depth, and time. Uh, so if we took the center of an object and, and measured it against some fixed point in space, um, we could say how many inches it was higher, uh, deeper to the right or left, of that object and then we could add seconds and we could plot the movement of something through space over time. We would be measuring space time that way. And what we know about space time is it's really funky when you get into deep gravity wells. So um, let's say a deep gravity well, like a black hole, black holes have something called an event horizon. That's the point when even light can't escape a black hole hole because gravity's pull is too intense. And if you get in a gravity well that deep, it is going to muck with the flow of time very significantly. Space-time also gets warped by speed. More specifically, the fraction of light speed a given reference frame is traveling. So the reason nothing can go faster than light speed in our universe is because from your own perspective, if you moved faster than the speed of light, you would arrive at your destination before you left from your own perspective. And we know that is not possible. Uh, so, no time travel, no moving faster than the speed of light in our universe. But if you're moving very close to the speed of light, time for you will progress much more slowly than someone who's not moving very close to the speed of light. We know that. We have experiments to back it up. So time moves slower when you're in deep gravity, like at the event horizon of a black hole, or whenever you're moving faster. Believe it or not, when you're on an airplane, time moves just a little bit slower than it does on the ground. Um, and that means when you combine distance and speed and gravitation, you can do really strange things. You can take objects that are, uh, or excuse me, reference frames or points of observation that are, you know, thousands or millions of light years apart. You can get them going at a good velocity and do the math to figure out, you know, what uh, the point of observation would be between those two points. And then you can change the speed and the direction of one of those objects and you can do that math again, and you'll sweep the intersection of their object of their observation points by more than human history, right? So you can imagine if you had a little spaceship far enough away, and you pointed it towards the Earth, and you could somehow resolve the Earth at that that distance, uh, you might see 2020, and then if you change the direction of your spacecraft, move at the same speed in the opposite direction and look at the Earth again, you might see uh, Earth before civilization. 
Isn't that wild? <laughs> That's completely possible, plausible uh, inside of our physical understanding of the cosmos. That does funny things to our conception of time. Very, very funny things. Of course, things can only propagate in our universe at light speed. Gravity, everything is limited by light speed. So when people say time doesn't exist, what they often mean is that the arrow of time isn't known to physics today. We know that in physics, equations work the same way no matter which direction the arrow of time is flowing. In theory, if you hold an egg up and you let it go and it falls to the ground and it shatters, and you were able to immediately reverse all the energy of every piece of that egg in exactly the opposite way that it came to rest at that point, they would all converge together and jump back up in the air and land in your hand, right? That doesn't happen, though, does it? We don't, we don't actually experiencing physics as being reversible. But on paper, the math works. So the only thing we've seen to support an arrow of time at all is that entropy must increase in any closed system, right? That's, that's what leads us, despite the mysteries around the mathematics of time and the reversibility of most ideas in physics, the reason we believe that there is an arrow of time is entropy. One of the reasons my, uh, the way I sign letters is peace, love, entropy is to denote the inevitability of the passage of time and its capacity to claim all things. Our observable universe began in some highly ordered state and then becomes less so over time. That's really all we know about the arrow of time today. And the strangeness of space-time and relativity and the reversibility of all the equations we see in physics are what lead people to say that time does not exist. But clearly, as a fabric of the cosmos, time does exist. It's just nothing like we imagine it each day. If you're really curious about this, I'm going to post links to a couple of great books that cover time in depth on the show notes this week on AskScienceMike.com. Just look for episode 183. This episode of Ask Science Mike was sponsored by KiwiCo, and I'm so thrilled that it was because I love KiwiCo. It is a service that allows children to have fun, and I mean have fun, learning about concepts in science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. The way it works is you go to KiwiCo.com science, and you sign up for a free KiwiCrate. I'm going to send you an age-appropriate crate with projects every month for your child to explore the disciplines of science, technology, engineering, art, and math. They're super fun. In my house, we have hydraulic-powered cranes and walking robots and felt gardens and um, customized lights and all kinds of exciting things my children have built and enjoyed. Now, I really have to give a shout out to KiwiCo here because my daughters 
are 11 and 13. They are not at an age where you would imagine they would necessarily like to uh, be engaged in Steam projects or uh, really anything other than Instagram and hanging out with their friends. But my kids look forward to the arrival of Kiwi Crates and they set the devices down and uh, start building and making as soon as they arrive. I've gotten tons of feedback from listeners who've given KiwiCo a try and had a great experience. Even my close friends, kids, have signed up for KiwiCo. It's amazing. And because you listen to Ask Science Mike, KiwiCo is going to do something really cool. They're going to send you a crate for free. So if you'd like your child to learn more about science, engineering, art, math, and technology in a way that's fun, just go to KiwiCo.com science to get a hold of your free crate today. Our next question came in via email and it reads, Hi Science Mike, can you do a show on plastic? I'm totally overwhelmed with trying to reduce the amount of food packaging that I choose to bring home from the grocery store. Thanks, Maggie. Gosh, Maggie, that's a great and very timely question. Um, and it, there is no easy answer. Um, I, you know, I'll talk a little bit about the major types of plastic pollution and where they come from. And you can make differences in like how you buy and shop. Um, but part of what's going to be required is also contacting companies and telling them you're concerned with plastic pollution. As a consumer, that's probably one of the most powerful things that you can do. If enough people complain about plastic containers, then companies will respond. If you're a, an industrial-scale producer, then using plastics makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. They're easy and cheap and easy to keep sanitary and uh, they, they increase shelf life and do all these things that uh, industry values. So we as consumers will probably have to make it clear that we're going to change our purchasing habits based on the amount of plastic uh, that goes into packaging. And speaking of that, let's kind of go over um, where plastic is used in food supply. And by far, by far, the biggest contributor of plastic waste in the food system is food wrappers and containers, candy bar wrappers, potato chip bags, uh, plastic single-use bins for donuts and, and croissants in the bakery section, the bags around um, loaves of bread, right? There's plastic everywhere wrapping and containing the food that we eat. Some 31% of plastic pollution in the environment uh, that comes from food, comes from food wrappers and containers. Uh, and this is a big cultural thing. We, we like being able to tear open a plastic wrapper and, and eat a candy bar, an energy bar. Um, but that's a huge source of plastic pollution. Uh, the next one would be uh, bottle and container caps at 15.5%, uh, but caps just kind of float on water and uh, take a long time to break down. So, and some environmentalists believe that uh, plastic ingestion is a major factor in 
uh, population declines for birds uh, that live around water. So bottle and container caps are a big source. Of course, number three, plastic bags at 11.18%. We know they're terrible. Um, Only 3% of plastic bags are recycled despite the wide public knowledge around their dangers, and a lot of people don't use reusable bags. Um, so they're a, they're a real problem. Straws and stirs make up 8.13% of food-based plastic pollution. That's a lot. Um, I don't know that I support straw bans because of how it impacts disabled people, uh, but I do think straws should move to a by-request-only item. Um, that would allow us to ensure that uh, people who can't drink without the use of a plastic straw are able to, but the rest of us uh, don't drown the earth in uh, a really hard-to-recycle, hard-to-manage form of pollution. Beverage bottles uh, make up 7.27%. Now, you might wonder, well, gosh, why... Do bottle caps make up more pollution than beverage bottles? Beverage bottles get recycled more often. Relatively high, something like 74% get recycled. So that's great. That's good news for recycling. Good news for the planet. But beverage bottles uh, make a big difference. And so you can lower the amount of um, beverages you buy that come in a bottle. That'll help a lot. We're a soda stream family at my house, so we like our fizzy water, but we make it at home. So there's no bottles. And then uh, takeout containers made 6.27% of food paste, food-based plastic pollution, right? Um, so we get to-go food, and we then have these takeout containers that find their way into landfills and into the ocean. So what can you do? Like easy things is definitely, you know, take reusable um, bags to the grocery store. Unless you have medical needs, go ahead and skip the straws. Uh, Use a refillable water bottle. If you like sugary or or sparkly drinks, get uh, the equipment that's not expensive to make your own sodas at home. You can avoid plastic packaging. Anything you see that's in a plastic package, see if there's an alternative. Think about hand soap. People love to squirt liquid hand soap, uh, but those those plastic bottles last forever. And if you refill them, um, you can actually put bacteria in your hand soap. So good old bar soap is a great alternative. And buy in bulk. It, it, anytime there's more stuff in a container, that's less total plastic. Um, give up plastic plates and cups, right? You know, just... Wash, wash some dishes, um, which is a pain. I get it. I hate doing it myself. Um, focus on recycling. Only 9% of people in the United States recycle. Um, excuse me, only 9% of recyclable material in the United States is recycled. Much lower than 30% in Europe or 25% in China. Uh, really, 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 really bad behavior there, U.S., not surprisingly. Um and then, you know, watch watch litter. A huge amount of plastic pollution came from beaches. People just dropping things uh, in near and around the ocean. Um, 
yeah, you've just got to use your eyes and look at those things in the grocery store, what uses more packaging and what uses less, and less packaging is better for the planet um, and probably better for your health. Less processed things tend to have less packaging. So that's one way to start reducing the amount of plastic that you produce with your household. Hey, Science Mike. So to be totally transparent, this is the fifth or sixth time that I am recording this question um, because I'm getting tongue-tied. So, okay. Uh, My husband and I were recently talking about what life forms might evolve from humans um, in the distant future once humans are long gone. Um, This is something that I think is super fascinating. And growing up, I thought that humans would always be around just because I was a like young earth creationist and like super fundamentalist and thought that humans were like essential to the plan of you know, the universe. So any uh, theories or hypotheses that, you know, science might have about what life forms could evolve from humans would be super interesting to hear about. Thanks. It's a really fun question to think about, you know, what, where, what could we evolve into? Um, There's no question that we are evolving. I hear people ask a lot, are humans still evolving? Absolutely. We've actually been evolving faster, at least in terms of our rate of genetic variation since the dawn of civilization than we did before that. So human evolution has not stopped, not by any means. If we look at what's happened since we've become culture animals, uh, our brains and bodies have been getting smaller, believe it or not, not larger, smaller. That doesn't mean we're getting dumber, uh, bigger Bigger bodies need bigger brains to control them. So just we're physically smaller, less brain mass is required to handle that. Although when you look at our teeth and you look at our brains, um, some anthropologists wonder if maybe our species is self-domesticating because you're seeing similar changes between us and our pre-agrarian ancestors as you might see between wolves and dogs or... um, you know, other other animals that have been domesticated, cows, sheep, all that kind of stuff. Domesticating domesticated animals have a little bit softer, easier life, right? <laughs> um, and humans, we've kind of put ourselves in these wonderful pens and and reduced our exposure to predation or competition with other predators. One possibility is that our brains and bodies continue to get smaller. Um, because we don't have to run down prey anymore. And over time, our genetics uh, respond to that. Maybe we'll start to edit our own genes before that happens, though. That that could be fascinating. We could be looking, we could be the first self-directed evolving species. We may start to choose the direction in which we evolve, and that, that could be good or that could be terrible. Um. It's possible we start to augment ourselves biologically with technology. That's another possibility for us that it's kind of new on the evolutionary front. Um, It's also possible that we are in the process of creating a version of Earth that our genetic lineage can't survive in at all. And what do I mean? Well, if you look at the amount of carbon in the air right now, 
There's more carbon in our atmosphere than there has ever been with human beings on the planet. So we have put a phenomenal amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and it will take time for the Earth's climate to catch up with that carbon, but it will over some period of decades. By the end of the century, we could be looking at eight degrees of warming Fahrenheit. That's a lot. That's a lot of warming. That's a lot of, that's a lot of climate change. That's a lot of sea level rise. That's a lot of desertification. Um, it may be that our most tropical focused genetic variations become the direction of the species. Um, or it may be that we can't adapt fast enough. We're in the middle of a mass extinction event based on the rate of species lost on this planet, species loss on this planet, and that's terrifying. Uh, animals our size tend to not make it through mass extinction events. Um, so you kind of have this fascinating thing where on the one hand, we seem to be self-domesticating. We might have the opportunity to have self-guided evolution, to evolve along with technology, or we may be changing the planet so much that we can't live in it anymore. And um, gosh, honestly, I don't know uh, what family of animals might be most likely to uh, move into an agrarian lifestyle after hours, um, depending on how how broad the collapse of the bioweb is during this mass extinction event caused by human activity. Um, yeah, we may, we may roll back significantly in terms of complex life and, and evolution may, may lose hundreds of millions of years of, of work. <laughs> um, nervous laugh there. It's really, really frightening. Um, I'll have an article on the show notes um, in Scientific American that explores kind of where Homo sapiens could go, but but my answer is we're not going anywhere unless we face our behavioral tendencies head on and reduce and eliminate the rate of species loss on the planet and reduce and then eliminate uh, our net contribution to carbon in the atmosphere. Um Otherwise, there isn't an exciting future in human evolution. Okay, our last question came in via email, and it reads, Hey Mike, first time asker, longtime listener. It's way too early to be talking about the 2020 election, but one of the candidates, Andrew Yang, has been talking a lot about how automation is the fourth industrial revolution and is coming for so many of our jobs. He proposes implementing a universal basic income, or freedom dividend, as he calls it, of $1,000 a month to help ease Americans into the next phase of our economic transition. We've already seen so many manufacturing jobs automated away. Self-driving cars and trucks are on the way, eliminating the need for many drivers. Self-service stations are eliminating retail and some fast food jobs. Computers can read x-rays better than radiologists. Software can sort through legal documents more quickly than lawyers and paralegals. The list goes on. With so many people potentially out of jobs, 
Is universal basic income a viable solution? Thanks for all you do. David. Well, David, first of all, I want to know want you to know that I love your question. The problem is I share your question. I don't I don't know. <laughs> I have the concerns about automation. I have deep concerns about the continuing aggregation of capital at the top um, wealth percentiles or fractions of a percentile in the global economy. Uh, but I don't think we can definitively answer questions about universal basic income scientifically. Here's why. There are very few universal basic income trials. And I don't know of any that have been completed. And even when they are completed, um, giving some thousands of people a basic income is going to have a very different economic impact than giving millions of people a basic income. Um, Economics is a really powerful field, but it's so hard. <laughs> um, I don't know why it is, but if you if you give me different cosmological models to consider, I can do a decent job of telling you which ones do a good job of representing a consensus view in the sciences. If you give me different theories on how the brain functions, different models in neuroscience, I can, I can do a pretty good job of weighing in between them. But economic models, my gosh, I just don't know how to differentiate between the quality of given economic models very well at all. And I just want to admit that. I want to honor your question by answering it. But boy, I am just like super, super unqualified to answer economic questions. Um, my understanding based on reading a lot, is that healthy economies need capital or money to move around to be healthy. That's what creates health in an economy is money moving around. When people hoard money, economies are unhealthy. When money flows through economies, then those economies are health healthier for everyone involved. And I also know that every economic model or theory or governance system that humans have tried since the dawn of civilization produce economic inequality because capital, meaning money, and political power, which is often just a proxy for money, are tools that allow people to aggregate more capital and more political power, even in the so-called planned economies around the world. In most economies, rich people continue to get what? More wealthy. Now, oddly enough, we do see data that suggests that even the very wealthy are healthier and happier when there's less inequality in a society. But based on how people behave given incentive structures, is if you have the ability to get more money, you tend to do it. When you have the ability to be in power over other people, you have a tendency to undergo some psychological changes that lead you into self-favoritism and dehumanize people who work for you. It's very strange. It's very consistent. Um, so we have this kind of bizarre thing where power and wealth tends to want to grow more power and wealth, and it changes the psychology of the person that holds the power and the wealth. Um, and then you get these grit, 
pools or aggregation of, of capital uh, among the wealthiest people. And then economies start to grind to a halt and everybody gets miserable. And then you have revolutions. <laughs> That's kind of how the cycle goes. And, and, and new people take the power and some of the old rich people get eaten or simply taxed heavily depending on what style of revolution occurred. And then the money moves around a little bit and then new people get in charge and then they start to aggregate all the money again. So what's fascinating to me about universal basic income would be baking into a given economic model the notion of moving capital, right? So some way you're always ensuring an injection of capital into an economy, into markets. And it's a good theory. I think it's a good theory. Um, because if it if unemployment becomes high unemployment becomes a fixed feature of an economy due to automation, it doesn't matter how low the cost of producing a good or a service is if there are no consumers with the money to buy it. Companies need customers with income in order to make money in order, like in a capitalist economy, to pay dividends to their shareholders or to have growth prospects. So it's actually it's in the short-term interest of a company to automate and to lower wages, but it's against the long-term interest of an economy and therefore the companies within it to constantly lower the number of employees and constantly lower their wages. So if companies can't get their heads around that uh, and they have incentive not to with quarterly reporting and a high pressure on growth and profit growth and margins, then universal basic income might be a way to recalibrate our economy and keep things from grinding to a halt as unemployment rises alongside increased automation. Now, I could be completely wrong. We are talking about a theory with a very, very little support from experiment um, and observation. But the, the fundamental notion that economies need capital to move in order to be healthy seems to support that in the future, a solution like universal basic income may in fact be needed. Well, it's another week, another Ask Science Mike. Boy, my head's kind of soupy after that one. <laughs> How was some show? Thanks for all those questions, even the one on economics. Um, it was a harder one to answer. It was fun to talk about science again. We've done so many, uh, so many life advice questions in the last few months, but I, re I really enjoy the science ones. Uh, so I want to thank Andrew Golucky for helping find some science-themed questions this week. He does pre-production for the show. I want to thank Greg Nordine for producing, editing, and sound designing Ask Science Mike. I want to thank Jeb Botterford for writing and recording the amazing Ask Science Mike theme song. And of course, I want to thank all of my patrons for making Ask Science Mike and my entire life possible. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Thank you.